This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boudou of the Axios Today Podcast, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. Hey, if anybody's still out here, it's time to go! If anybody's still out here, it's time to go! It's time to go! That's Dustin Johnson. His cell phone footage shows Lahaina Harbor's pier in Maui engulfed in smoke. He got out alive. But at least 55 people have died in the fires devastating parts of Maui. We'll get to the latest about the wildfires in Hawaii in a moment. Also, lots of other news to catch up from the courthouse, the ballot box, and a few foot stompers, too. With us is Arthur Delaney, reporter at HuffPo, Wendy Benjaminson, Washington senior editor at Bloomberg News, and Robert Costa, chief election and campaign chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News and co-author of the book Peril with Bob Woodward. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's start in Hawaii. For my podcast, Axios Today, I spoke to Hawaii Public Radio's Kuhuvehi Hirarishi late last night. She shared with me some of the conversations she's been able to have with those affected. I've heard devastating, heartbreaking, unbelievable were some of the words uh, that I've heard from 46-year-old Tori Ho'opi'i as she was sort of holding back tears describing the wildfire damage to her hometown. And for many who are still in Lahaina, not able to get back uh, to their homes, uh, phone lines are still down and internet, so no idea of how to get in contact for those who may be stranded. It's just sort of a waiting game at this point. For people who don't know about Hawaiian culture or history, what should they know about Lahaina? I'd say that people need to know that it's more than a tourist town. While there are hotels nearby, this was the center of the Hawaiian Kingdom. So it was a center of government and commerce. This is where decisions were being made that would alter the future course of of Hawaii for the next several centuries. And all that history is embedded in some of these structures. Uh, Viola Church was seen sort of ablaze. This is the first Hawaiian church on Maui Island, and uh, being that that was also the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom, many of our Hawaiian royalty living in the area at the time would service and worship at this church, and when they had passed away, they were also buried there. So it's not just the church, but the church grounds for Waiola. We haven't been able to assess the damage there, but the idea that their bones and their spirit is still a part of that land is something that for the folks of Waiola Church, they're hoping to assess and get back to um, rebuilding. What are people sharing with you about what has been lost? I spoke to folks Wednesday, which is sort of very fresh off of the ground that the fire had made Tuesday night. And so a lot of raw emotions over what was lost. But there was also a sense of resilience, of hope. Uh, this area of Lahaina, if you dissect the word in Olalo Hawaii or Hawaiian language, it means cruel sun because it's just so hot. So the people of that area have for generations understood that 
dry conditions and winds that are known to have come through the area are, uh, you know, ground for fires. And they've They've gone through it before in 2018 with Hurricane Lane. And I think for the people of the area, especially for those who have lived there for generations, there is a sense of loss, but there's that sense of resilience that they can get through this as long as they get through it together. That's Hawaii Public Radio's Kuhuvehi Hiraishi. Bob, on Thursday, President Biden outlined the federal government's response. What did he say? In short, President Biden, while speaking in Utah, said the federal government would put all possible resources towards Hawaii in this disaster scenario. They have He has declared that there has been a disaster in Hawaii. And he has also uh, had FEMA head there quickly to try to have the director of FEMA allocate resources in an efficient way as quickly as possible to streamline any requests so that all of the people uh, who are suffering get things from the federal government as soon as possible. The military has also been asked in on all aspects to contribute as much as they can, whether it's the Navy or the Coast Guard. Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, was out of state when the fires began. He's now back to help lead the emergency response in Maui and Hawaii counties. Governor Green was emotional when he spoke to KHON on Thursday. He wanted to remind viewers how difficult the coming weeks and months are going to be. It is heroic when you have 100 firefighters going into places where they know they are going to see not just loss of property and put their lives on the line, but also they will see people that they grew up with who have suffered or passed away. That is an incredibly traumatizing event. And so let's wrap our arms around them and share love with them. We haven't had a fatality like this since, uh, forgive me, statehood began. People in Maui are going to feel this. Arthur, what do we know about the search and rescue operations that are underway right now? Well, they're just getting started. Like you said, there's 55 people dead. A thousand plus are still missing. That And the death toll is going to rise. I don't think it will rise that high. Uh, but so many people are missing because the fires took out cell phone service. So uh, it's, it's like the governor said, it, it's going to be a, a, a chaotic and difficult few weeks. And with power out in parts of Maui and for a time cell phone service down, I know there were conversations yesterday with local news official with local officials saying they're worried about misinformation. How much of that has been a problem or just communication in general? I think it's just communication itself that's been a problem. Uh, they, they have a, a siren system that uh, this may have been a problem. It didn't go off. And instead, they alerted people through text. But by you know the, the fire had spread so quickly, it basically blowtorched everything, and cell service was already out. So there's from the get go a huge communication problem, and I, I don't know that informa- misinformation has yet even been able to spread. Wendy, Hawaii's economy is dependent on tourism. There were also smaller fires on Hawaii's Big Island; those were mostly contained by Wednesday evening. Given that Hawaii is a series of islands, of which the big island of Hawaii hasn't been as affected, what's the message about tourism right now? Well, you're absolutely right. And um, Hawaii's economy is both tourism and agriculture. And so both... Uh, both sides of the economy have taken a massive hit with this disaster. But the Hawaii Tourism Authority just this morning put out a statement to please asking any tourists that are left in Maui who can get out to leave, obviously, to ease the rescue for the people who live there. But they've also asked others to either postpone a trip to Maui or consider going to Kauai or Oahu, other beautiful islands um, with that have not been affected and can support tourists right now. 
Let's turn to the Inflation Reduction Act. It's been a year since President Biden passed the act. Part of that huge bill addresses the challenge of climate change. On Tuesday, President Biden was pushed on that issue when he spoke to the Weather Channel. Let's take a listen. Are you prepared to declare a national emergency with respect to climate change? I've already done that. National emergency, we've conserved more land. We've rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. We've passed a $368 billion climate control facility. It is the existential threat to humanity. So you've already declared that national emergency. Practically speaking, yes. President Biden speaking to the Weather Channel, Stephanie Abrams, on Tuesday. Bob, what does practically speaking mean? Either you've declared a national emergency or you haven't. He's trying to position himself as someone who has addressed climate change in a significant way, legislatively, politically, rhetorically, without having made a formal declaration because of what that entails sometimes in terms of federal spending and the federal response. This has been a challenge for President Biden because when you look at one of his signature pieces of legislation, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And it's actually a bill that has enormous amounts of climate change provisions inside of it. But it was called the Inflation Reduction Act because during the course of negotiations, senators like West Virginia's Joe Manchin, a moderate Democrat, didn't want to necessarily throw their support behind something that was the Climate Change 101 bill. So they called it the Inflation Reduction Act, but it's actually a sweeping piece of federal spending legislation. And the Biden administration from day one, especially when it had Democratic majorities across Congress, has done a lot on climate change. But he also knows that so many progressives still would like to see him do more on climate change. And so there is frustration based on my reporting inside of the White House that the president believes he's done more than past Democratic presidents, including President Obama. He's certainly done more than Republicans like former President Trump, but he doesn't feel like he's always getting the credit he believes he deserves from progressives. But progressives will keep nudging him to spend more and to declare more. Right. And so we were just talking about a disaster declaration for Hawaii and how clear that is. And everyone knows that happens. And that's obviously something we're talking about as a news organization. Is it possible to do something like that on climate change? Or would you say the Biden administration is saying they are already doing that? Well, they are saying they're already doing it. The question is, in a divided Washington, if you declare a national emergency on climate change, and what does that mean for all facets of the federal government uh, in terms of contributing to that problem in a, in a speedy way, in a way that addresses things immediately? So many uh, Biden administration officials see climate change as an urgent threat when you talk to them, but it's also something that needs to be addressed over time throughout all of these federal systems. We'll pick up the conversation after the break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. It's the News Roundup. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. 
Let's talk about another piece of legislation. On Tuesday, the Biden administration designated a fifth national monument near Grand Canyon National Park. The White House said the one million acres include ancestral land significant to Native Americans in the region. Arthur, can you tell us a little bit more about this announcement on Tuesday and why we were talking just before the break about this interview with the Weather Channel? It took place at the Grand Canyon? That's right. And it's the new national monument is called Ancestral Footprints of the Grand Canyon. And it's uh, two large areas, nearly a million acres north and south of the Grand Canyon. And for Joe Biden, it's uh, it's two things. It's it's conserving more U.S. land. They have a goal of conserving 30 percent of the country's land by uh, 2030. Right now, it's like less than half that. And also, it's a reckoning with our history because when the Grand Canyon National Park was created, uh, a lot of tribal nations were forced off that land. And, and Joe Biden said uh, – he, he, he mentioned that in his remarks and he said uh, they were forced out. And the very act of preserving the Grand Canyon as a national park was used to deny indigenous people full access to their homelands. So it's uh, – this is a way of redressing that. Wendy, some energy stakeholders say this new monument thwarts the Biden administration's focus on climate-friendly energy by preventing domestic uranium production in this area, which is needed for the production of nuclear energy. Is that a fair point? Yes and no. I think it, it is a fair point. It, he is certainly reducing uranium production mining, and that will slow Likely, you know, the um, nuclear energy, nuclear energy plants, which is clean, although there's still this 50-year debate about whether it's safe or not. But this also goes to Robert's point before the break, is that the this rule grandfathers in existing uranium mines. So he is not banning uranium mining in this area, just any new mining leases. And so this sort of goes to this political issue that Biden has had since he was elected, is that he wants to present as a progressive, and he wants to say that he's done more on climate change, and he may have than previous presidents. But he also needs those young voters, those young progressive climate-focused voters, to not be frustrated with him, as Bob said. And by taking these half measures whether you agree with them or not, but taking these half measures to just block new mines but allow the old mines to continue, you know, the young voters are, are seeing through that and they are frustrated. Bob, are these monuments sort of like, as Wendy's saying, the Biden administration's attempt to thread the needle then? The challenge the Biden administration has is that if they declare a national emergency on climate change, it will give them more federal power to counter things like drilling. They can set new rules and have much more of a hand in dictating climate policy across the federal government and in galvanizing people to – in different federal agencies to be a more – take a more aggressive approach. But Biden is someone who spent decades in the U.S. Senate and he knows that if he wants to get something substantial that's lasting, that has buy-in, he probably needs to work with Congress at some level. Congress is divided. Many – Republicans and moderate Democrats are hesitant to do anything uh, that would go up to the line of what a national declaration of an emergency on climate would entail. And so this is Biden ahead of 2024, having launched for re-election, exploring different options he has with with executive orders that aren't a declaration of an emergency, but certainly make this seem like a priority. And sometimes in politics, your actions are your priorities. So that's what he's trying to showcase. Thanks, Bob. 
Let's talk about what happened this week in Ohio. No. 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 And Republicans have a what now mentality after Roe v. Wade was overturned in state after state. Supporters of abortion rights are moving forward legislatively, sometimes at the ballot box to support having the right to have abortion rights in states, even states that have traditionally been red. And what we saw in Ohio is a push to have abortion rights protected under the state's constitution was countered by a Republican effort to raise the threshold to a so-called supermajority to change any uh, law in the state constitutionally. So any effort to make abortion rights permanent in Ohio, they wanted to make it much more difficult to do with this Republican initiative. And voters across the state said, as you just detailed, no, 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 no. And the intriguing thing for 2024 is that Ohio is a state that has been trending Republican in recent cycles. Yet beneath the surface, you see this support for abortion rights, even in a so-called conservative state that's frustrated with industrial manufacturing policy and national Democrats at some levels. We got these thoughts from Scott in Ohio. After our Secretary of State declared that Ohio's issue one was entirely about an abortion rights item to be on our November ballot, those advocating for its passage ran ads saying it was about gay and transgender people taking over our classrooms, taking away parental rights. And he asked this question. In the final days before our August 8th vote, the pro-issue one folks brought speakers to advocate for it, including Carrie Lake and Michael Flynn. Many of us are trying to understand why the issue one advocates al- uh, allied themselves with such prominent QAnon and election denying figures. What's the connection to anti-abortion? Well, both are bad politics and it didn't work. So, that, so that's one obvious connection. The, the Ohio Secretary of State is this guy, Frank, Relo- uh, Frank LaRose. And uh, you know he hopes that this issue prevails when uh, you know he hopes that they defeat this amendment to the state constitution enshrining abortion rights uh, next year. Uh, he also hopes to challenge uh, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown and wants to be the next senator from Ohio. And this it, is just poison for him, and it's going to cost him in the Republican primary, where his his likely opponents in March are already saying you did a terrible job at this. Uh, this this uh, rapidly pro-life stuff doesn't work. Right. So we actually have a clip of him discussing how he feels about this. Uh, speaking to Fox and Friends, this is Ohio Republican Secretary of State Frank LaRose on Wednesday. This is just one battle in a much larger war, though, because the all-out assault on Ohio is coming from the radical left. And even the mayor of Cleveland said last week, he said the quiet part out loud, they want to do common sense gun reform, which means they want to disarm law-abiding citizens. So, yeah. We lost uh, one battle, but the war continues, and I've just begun to fight. Bob, to Arthur's point, it doesn't seem like Ohio voters made those connections, at least when it comes to issue one. Abortion rights, such a complicated issue when I'm out there on the campaign trail 
for CBS, you encounter voters who identify as opponents of abortion rights, but they also are understanding of Roe v. Wade having been entrenched in, in the public's mind and in many laws across the country. In fact, of course, across the country, have when it was made law by the Supreme Court or allowed by the Supreme Court 50 years ago, and there's been an acceptance of this even among those who oppose abortion rights. And to see the disruption the overturning has created has sparked a new debate in this country that has not led to a cohesive response from the opponents of abortion rights. You see across the country real ongoing vigorous debates among Republicans. Should there be a ban in certain states of six weeks on abortion, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, 30 weeks? And there's no consensus about where exactly that should land. Where is the public on this? Where can they make the most inroads for their policy position without turning off the electorate? And they're navigating through this thicket of uncertainty in the Republican Party of where the country really is. And that's why you keep seeing whether it's in Kansas or now in Ohio, red states, Republicans grappling with what what do we do now that Roe v. Wade's overturned? We want to keep pushing the ball on policy down the road. But many voters who have been now accepting of abortion rights for five decades are saying, well, wait a minute. Let's not just go that far just yet. Let's think about how far we want to go. This is a very private matter for many people. Wendy, Frank LaRose also pointed to the influence of, quote, outside money. What extent are these local campaigns being swayed by national interests? And what role did that play with Ohio voters here for issue one? Well, he's right in the sense that national uh, uh, pro-abortion rights groups um, certainly funded some of the uh, campaigns for it and were influencing and um, advertising in favor of it. And the same groups will be doing the same in Arizona, Missouri, and Florida. But I think what he might be missing there is that to Ohio voters, even some Republican voters by these margins that they got um, in this election this week, um, you know, there's really nothing more local if you believe in abortion rights than the control you have over your own reproductive uh, choices and when you would have children and when you wouldn't. And so I think they're really underestimating the passion of what polling seems to show is two-thirds of the country is in favor of abortion rights. And Republicans are, are you know, hell-bent on pushing this, uh, you know, um, the idea of outlawing abortion nationwide. And we've seen over and over again in red states that voters just aren't aren't cottoning to it. A reminder, we're speaking with Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson, The Huffington Post's Arthur Delaney, and Robert Costa, chief election and campaign correspondent for CBS News. Let's switch gears now to former President Donald Trump's ongoing legal battles. Trump's attorneys and federal prosecutors are meeting in court today. This week, the judge said both sides must discuss the proposed restrictions on what Trump can publicly say about the DOJ's evidence in the January 6th case. Wendy, what's each side saying about their respective protective order proposals? Well, it's interesting. Uh, they just to give you a little background on court procedure, the prosecution, which has made this very thorough indictment, has to share with the defense in our system um, the evidence they have. And that evidence can include witnesses' names and other identifying information about witnesses and what they might be saying about it. This is standard procedure. But 
before the prosecutor, Jack Smith's team, could give that to Trump's lawyers, Trump put a post out on Truth Social that said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you. We don't know who you was. You could have been Democrats. You could have been anybody. But Jack Smith took it to mean witnesses in this case or prosecutors or judges. And so he asked for this protective order uh, to... uh, that would limit Trump and his lawyers from what they can say in public or on social media about the case and the witnesses. And Trump's team's response was that this is a violation of his First Amendment rights, which is going to be a theme you will hear throughout these prosecutions of Donald Trump. And part of it is because his signature rallies are all about these airing of grievances that he that he does. And he wants to complain about this case and he wants to build voter sympathy for it. And if there's any limit to what he can say, that just um, doesn't fly with him. As you said, Wendy, uh, let's take a listen to Trump at a campaign rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. This is all about election interference, but that isn't quite good enough. Crooked Joe now wants the thug prosecutor, this deranged guy, to file a court order taking away my First Amendment rights so that I can't speak. So listen to this. Bob, how reasonable is Trump's claim that the DOJ's protective order is restricting his freedom of speech here? It's complicated for Trump because he's a candidate for federal office. And there are – there's a real hesitation in the legal community to put any kind of restrictions upon those running for federal office for free speech reasons. And even more complicated is that one of the the key witnesses in the January 6th investigation is former Vice President Mike Pence, who's also a candidate for federal office and running against the person who's been indicted. So this leaves the judge today with a bit of a winding path ahead to figure out how do you protect evidence in the case? How do you make sure that witnesses are not pressured by Trump? But how do you also protect his free speech rights, especially as a former president of the United States running once again for the presidency? So based on my conversations with legal experts in the past few days, there's an expectation that the judge will issue a protective order to ensure that Trump is not talking about specifics of the evidence and he's not pressuring witnesses. That means you can't lean on Rudy Giuliani, if he's one of the co-conspirators or Pence, who's one of the key witnesses, and start saying you must say this or that. But he might have wide leeway to make comments about them broadly if it's not specifically about the case because January 6th is something that happened in the public domain. The specifics of the evidence, the judge will probably say you can't do anything about that. And it's going to be very interesting to see how exactly a protective order is worded. This is different than the protective order listed in the Mar-a-Lago case because that dealt with so much classified material. And Trump has agreed with his lawyers to the protective order in the Mar-a-Lago case. Uh, It's much more difficult to try to say – the judge in in that case wanted to make sure Trump wasn't talking about things that were – would be illegal to talk about. This is a little different because the classified material on January 6th is negligible. It's not really a big part of the case. but this is a, this, and if Trump does not like the order today, you can expect him and his lawyers to appeal on free speech grounds. Right. Arthur, to what Bob's saying, is that sort of how Trump has said he's going to defy this order if it goes into effect? Is that maybe how he would do that by broad strokes instead of talking about details of the case? Well, well if you listen to his rally, he's trying to create the impression that they're trying to prevent him from speaking in public. And so he says, I'll talk anyway, I'll defy them. And that, that's not really what's going on. 
It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Let's get back to the news roundup. Yesterday, federal prosecutors asked the U.S. District Judge overseeing the January 6th trial to set the start date for January 2nd, 2024. Wendy, what reasons are they giving for that? Well, they they say there's a speedy, they, they want to honor Donald Trump's right to a speedy trial. Um, but I think there's, and that there's tremendous public interest in this case, and both of those things are true. I think there's probably a little more to it behind the scenes, or even if they didn't think of this, there will be this atmosphere around it. First of all, the fourth day of the trial would be the anniversary of January 6th, where every TV on the planet will be showing the riot again and over and over again. It is two weeks before the Republicans' Iowa caucus, which will be the first contest in the 2024 presidential race. So it's... um, so it's it's uh, not a great time for the defense. And of course, Trump's lawyer, uh, Jonathan Laro, said that it could take years to review the evidence and Trump would be, as in his mind, president again um, by the time the trial started, which would make it even more complicated. So given that, when might we expect this trial date to be set? There's going to be a hearing on August 28th where the judge, Chutkin, will will make that decision. She will listen to both sides and make a decision, but we won't know until the end of the month. You know, the last uh, Judge Eileen Cannon in the documents case set May 20th as a trial date which was an interesting choice because it's after most of the primaries are over. The country will know whether Donald Trump is the Republican nominee or not. But it's before the nominating convention when that would be, you know, uh, carved into stone. Right. And in that documents case, uh, former President Trump's handling of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate yesterday, Trump and his aide, Walt Nauta, pleaded not guilty to new charges of conspiring to conceal surveillance footage from the FBI. And a new co-defendant was also charged for allegedly mishandling classified government documents. Carlos de Oliveira is Trump's property manager. He hasn't entered a plea because he says he's not been able to find a lawyer to represent him in Florida. Bob, some lawyers say that's a tactic to delay his plea. What's your read on this situation? Uh, Mr. D. Oliveira is part of this alleged scheme to delete footage at Mar-a-Lago during this um, f- subpoena issued to Trump uh, when he was declining to give back some of those records from his presidency. And D. Oliveira, uh, one of the employees at Mar-a-Lago, has a Washington-based attorney but has not been able to find, in his words, a Florida-based attorney, which is necessary to appear and make a plea or to uh, plead not guilty or guilty in federal court. This is part of a struggle we've seen across the Trump orbit 
there's oftentimes it's difficult to get people to sign on as a Florida-based attorney to a special counsel federal case. These are very complicated, high-stakes cases. Trump himself took a lot of time to find his attorney, Chris Kyes in Florida. took him months to find him. It's much easier to find people who are licensed to practice in Washington, D.C. Let's move to another topic. Ghost guns are firearms that can be built from homemade kits that don't have a serial number and are untraceable. The Biden administration tried to regulate the untraceable firearms last year, and the new rule was put on hold by a federal judge. But this week, the Supreme Court decided to temporarily allow the rule while challenges make their way through the courts. Wendy, what are the regulations that can now take effect? Well, what the court did was reinstate their regulations. You're absolutely right. And they're basically the same regulations that exist for any weapons now, which are, um, you know, background checks, uh, licensing, record keeping requirements, all of the things for any gun that is or weapon that is sold commercially um, is exactly what they're doing here. And the analogy is, for example, if there were a tax or regulations on furniture And Ikea somehow was exempt from that because they sell their furniture in pieces. Uh, You know, that when you put everything together, if you got all the right number of screws, which you probably didn't, you would have a table at the end of this. And then they would say you can't regulate that table. So that's what the Biden administration is trying to do here. I should note that this ruling is only in effect while the challenges continue through the courts. And so when the when it comes back before the Supreme Court, if it does, we may get a different outcome. Now, the Supreme Court voted five to four on this decision. Arthur, what kind of breakdown we did we see here with the justices? Uh, well, I, I, we saw the conservatives in favor of uh, uh, blocking the regulation, so not a, a shocking breakdown. Uh, but they, they sent it back to be handled by lower courts. So it's not like a definitive outcome. Right. And we did see Chief Justice John Roberts join Justice Amy Coney Barrett um, with the court's three liberals for this on this decision. Bob, when, what do we think happens next here? This is going to just continue to play out in how the federal government approaches this. I mean, ghost guns have been hovering over the Biden administration since the beginning. The bigger question I have with gun control legislation is what has happens in Congress. I mean, this is a divided government. The president, I'm told, was pleased to be able to get some incremental reform done in the last year or so, but not enough. And to what we were talking about earlier, whether it was the failure on student loans, uh, whether it's climate change and declaring a national emergency and now guns, ghost guns are not, gun control. These are issues that really matter to young voters out on the campaign trail. And the administration's under pressure to get things done. Arthur, what is the thinking in Congress about ghost guns right now? Is that a conversation that's happening? Well, among Democrats, yes. Uh, but it's it, there's just not the votes for another significant gun control bill after the one they passed last year, which was major. And, uh, you know, to hear Republicans say it, the issue's been settled. That law did everything we can do to get uh, unlicensed firearm sales under control. And, uh, you know, Democrats talk about it a lot and believe that voters are on their side, but there's simply nothing going to happen on Capitol Hill. In another action this week, the Supreme Court temporarily blocked Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy deal with the Sackler family who controlled the company. As part of the deal, the Sacklers agreed to pay $6 billion to settle opioid claims in exchange for immunity in all future lawsuits. The Biden administration sued, saying the deal offered too broad of protections for the family. The Supreme Court will hear the case next fall.
Let's move to a new report from ProPublica published on Thursday, also about the Supreme Court, detailing more gifts Justice Clarence Thomas received while on the Supreme Court, including stays at luxury resorts and private flights with limited public disclosure. Wendy, what else do we need to know from this most recent ProPublica report on Thomas? Well, the story really goes into uh, much more detail about at least 38 vacation destinations that he went to. And these are not holiday inns. He was staying at, you know, the best places, flying on private jets, um, really luxury vacations that cost tens of thousands of dollars, um, all paid for by wealthy people who say they are friends of his, whether they really are or not is 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 hard to tell. I mean, we take the justice at his word that they are friends. But there is an oil baron, Tony Novelli. There's a private equity executive, David Sokol. The late H. Wayne Wizenga was part of um, these uh, the support for his vacations. And it just, again, highlights whether or not – there's no absolute evidence that these people had cases before the Supreme Court and were trying to buy a vote from the Supreme Court, which – would be shocking. But it does speak to the need for perhaps the Supreme Court, and that's the debate in Congress now, needs to have the same ethics rules that apply to other federal judges, where they must at least tell somebody if a billionaire buys them an expensive vacation. Wendy, how does this fit into all of the reporting that's come out over the past few months about other GOP-funded vacations for the Supreme Court justice? I, I, it's, it again, you know, really speaks to this need for someone to decide, and in our system, that would be Chief Justice John Roberts, to decide what the ethics rules should be. If, even if they don't have a case before the Supreme Court, it's that appearance of a conflict of interest. It's an appearance that he spent a lot of time listening to an oil baron talk about energy and drilling, and perhaps that would influence his views on things. Uh, we, we just don't know, though, what the effect of these, uh, this, these gifts were, but it, it isn't something any other politician is allowed. And there is a discussion of whether the Supreme Court should be exempt from the rules. The Senate Judiciary Committee did approve a bill last month that would require a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Bob, where is that? Where does that stand? Stalled. It's not going much of anywhere right now because Republicans in the Senate uh, don't seem interested in moving it along. And Republicans uh, are very supportive of Clarence Thomas. The justice remains a favorite on the right. And these ProPublica stories, while excellent reporting, are not landing with impact, at least now, inside of the Republican Party. Uh, But these are important pieces of reporting because they raise questions about Supreme Court ethics, and they're bringing the issue to the forefront of the American conversation. They're putting pressure also on Chief Justice John Roberts to see if he's going to move forward in any way to have self-regulation installed in a bigger sense inside the Supreme Court, though even then, many Senate Democrats and some Republicans have said, is that enough? Does Congress need to step in? But it's something that has raised a lot of legal questions about what role does Congress really have to regulate the Supreme Court? Congress has the power to impeach federal judges. They've done that before. They could impeach 
uh, a Supreme Court justice. But beyond taking that drastic step, it's really a hands-off uh, regula- regulatory position from Congress to the court. Let's move to some workplace news. The White House is urging more federal workers to come back to the office this fall as part of a broader effort to restore workplace patterns upended by the pandemic. And the government isn't the only employer trying to get workers back in person. Zoom, the company partially responsible for making remote work possible, also said its employees will return to the office. Arthur, for a lot of workers, remote work is not even just a perk, like that they're willing to switch jobs for. It's almost a necessity for some people. How is this How is this conflict going to work out between employers wanting to revert back to in-person work and employees wanting to stay remote? Well, it's clear that the pandemic's over, but it created a new normal where there's an expectation for at least some remote work by lots of workers, including federal workers. Like when the Social Security Administration reopened its offices They maintained a telework policy that they had not previously had that its unions say is actually pretty advantageous when there's like a snow emergency, for example. So I I think there will be a a continued push uh, by the administration, which is also, you know, hearing calls from Republicans in Congress, like make people get back to work because they're always yelling at federal workers. Uh, But it's it's something that will uh, not go back to the way it was before the pandemic. Let's end on the bitter disappointment of the Women's World Cup. We're talking about Sweden sending the U.S. national team home after a tight game decided on penalty kicks. Um, Arthur, this is the first time in the team's history they've been eliminated this early in the World Cup. What happened to lead to this moment? Well, it was really sad because they were the supposed to be the best team in the tournament. And in all the games they played, they did appear to be better than the other teams, at least in the sense that they were kicking the ball at the goal more than the other teams were. And that happened in that last game. They were kicking the ball at the goal all the time, and the Swedish goalie kept blocking it, and so they did not win. And then they and then they failed to kick the ball at the goal in the shootout and lost. So that was extremely frustrating. There's all kinds of political fallout uh uh you know from Donald Trump yelling at them that had nothing to do with the fact that it was actually just a really disappointing outcome for sports fans. How worried should head coach Flacco Andonovsky be right now? Well, I'm I'm not an expert, but if I were him, I'd be worried. He's supposed to win. Right. Well, we'll have to wait and see how the U.S. national team does at next year's Summer Olympics. And we'll see another familiar face in Paris next year. Over the weekend, four-time Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles made her return to competitive gymnastics after a two-year break. Wendy, Simone finished in first place at the U.S. Classic on Saturday, and it was her first competition back after taking a hiatus from the sport for mental health reasons. How significant is her return one year out from the Paris Olympics? Well, first, I'm just thrilled to be ending on such a happy note, given all the other stories we've had today. But um, it was, it is significant. She she left under a cloud of real criticism about whether she was quitting and she was a snowflake and, you know, too tender for the sport. And when she said, I really just want to focus on my life and my health and get, you know, get in a good headspace so I can compete again. So she left for a couple of years. She got married to a defensive back for the Green Bay Packers in a beautiful wedding with four dresses. And then she came back um, this week to the U.S. Classic and blew the roof off the stadium. She was powerful. She was graceful. She did a fantastic job. And the whole place was cheering. And it was just a wonderful moment. 
Right. Well, that's a good place to end on. My thanks this week to Wendy Benjaminson, Washington Senior Editor at Bloomberg News, Robert Costa, Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent for CBS News, and Arthur Delaney, reporter at The Huffington Post. Thanks to you all. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, we remember Canadian singer-songwriter Robbie Robertson. You can walk on the water, drown in the sand. You can fly off the mountain top, anybody can. Robertson passed away this week in Los Angeles. He collaborated with some of the biggest names in music, Bob Dylan, Emmylou Harris, and the Staple Sisters. But it was with his band, The Band, that he would write some of his best-known songs, including The Weight and Up on Cripple Creek. Robertson was born in Toronto and widely credited with helping forge the genre known as Americana. The genre fused together folk, country, and rock, and leaned heavily on traditions of storytelling and sense of place. Robbie Robertson was 80 years old. Life is a carnival, believe it or not. Life is a carnival, a shot. Coming up on the global edition of the News Roundup, overseas this week, the U.S. has a new deal with Iran. What do we know about plans for a prisoner swap? A push to preserve the Amazon rainforest comes up short. In Ecuador, presidential politics turn deadly and relief in Haiti as kidnappers release a U.S. nurse and her daughter. We have those stories and more in just a moment. Stay with us. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. Coming up, Ecuador is in a state of emergency after a presidential candidate known for speaking up about corruption is assassinated at a campaign rally in Quito. Here's Fernanda Villavicencios speaking at what became his last speech on Wednesday night. This democracy cost our lives. This country has cost our lives. We won't permit a new treason. A senior U.S. diplomat traveled to Niger this week to meet military junta leaders as part of an ongoing diplomatic efforts to get the ousted president freed and reinstalled. Here's State Department spokesperson Matt Miller. As she said last night in the call she had uh, with the press, they were very difficult conversations. She didn't achieve any breakthroughs, and it's not at all clear that they will choose the diplomatic path forward. And... Is it really a 1A News Roundup without a bear? We're going on a bear hunt. We're going on a bear hunt. I've got my binoculars. I've got my The story of a bear who ended up in just about the last place you expect or want to see one. All that and more with my expert panel today. Elise Labatt is founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. Welcome back, Elise. Oh, it's good to be with you. David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Hi, David. Hello. 
And Emily Tamkin is a reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Emily, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for being here. Let's get into it. Iran has moved five Iranian-Americans from prison to house arrest in exchange for billions of dollars frozen in South Korea. The news was announced by U.S. and Iranian officials as part of a tentative deal that follows months of heightened tensions between the two countries. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke at the State Department yesterday. First, it's a positive step that uh, they were released from prison and sent to uh, home detention. This is just the beginning of a process that I hope uh, and expect will lead to their return home to the United States. David, who are these prisoners and how long have they been in Iran? So it's a sign of just what a murky story this is and what a brutal place Iran is. We actually only know the names of three of the five. They're um, all dual nationals and Iran doesn't recognize dual nationals and has a horrible record of picking up uh, Iranian Americans or Iranian British and other dual nationals and using them as kind of hostages to swap, if you like. And so uh, certainly the lawyers and the families and diplomats from governments, including America, think that people have been thrown in jail essentially on uh, unfounded spy charges for political reasons. And so we have uh, Siamak Namaz, uh, we have others who have been accused of utter, uh, been sentenced to up to 10 years uh, on spying charges. We have a, a British American conservationist uh, given again 10 years uh, and then we had a fourth and a fifth. And in fact, one of them only picked up in March, one of the unnamed prisoners, just when the Americans seems to be on the brink of a deal. And so that like final kind of twist of, of kind of hostage taking by the Iranians. Now, what's a really interesting question is whether if these five do come home as the American government hopes, whether that's all American citizens in Iran. And there's conflicting reports because it's slightly unclear how many dual nationals are in Iran. Emily, let's talk about the timing of this, because this deal unfolded amid a major American military buildup in the Persian Gulf. Right. And actually what we've heard from, well, what Israeli officials have told um, various reporters is that uh, this is part of, that they believe this is part of a broader informal agreement between the United States and Iran um, that would see Iran limiting its nuclear program and also preventing its proxies from attacking U.S. forces. Um, so the, I think the hope, certainly on the U.S. side, is that this is part of a larger, um, you know, not not complete thaw, but perhaps warming of relations between between the United States and Iran through go between countries like Oman and like Switzerland. Iran's leaders acknowledge that the deal involves six to seven billion dollars that were frozen as a result of the sanctions. Iranian officials said the money would be transferred to Qatar before being sent on to Iran if the agreement goes through. Elise, what kind of response are we expecting from Republicans about this agreement? Well, we're already hearing it. And of course, you know, no Republican is unhappy that these Iranians are getting out. I mean, Simak Namazi has been in jail since 2015. And you remember his father, Bakr, was released in um, last October on medical grounds. So on one hand, they're saying that they're glad that they're out, but Republicans, key lawmakers on you know some of the national security committees are really criticizing the plan. Um, Jim Risch, the Republican on the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is you know saying it's setting a bad precedent, almost incentivizing hostage taking. And others like Tom Cotton on the Senate Armed Services Committee are calling it you know, appeasement. And so, look, you know, anytime the U.S. is negotiating with Iran, Republicans are going to criticize that. 
They did the same with the um, Iran deal with, under Barack Obama, and there was a separate deal um, to release some prisoners in a kind of separate deal um, to give cash to the Iranians um, unfreezing funds. But the truth is that this money, as, as you just said, goes through Qatar, who administers it solely for humanitarian purposes. So Republicans now are going to be in the unenviable position of either, you know, criticizing Americans coming home or criticizing Iranians getting food and medicine. So, you know, obviously the criticism is understandable, but when you see how the deal is going to be translated, um, it really looks like this is going to be solely for humanitarian purposes. David, we started this conversation with you saying how little we know about this situation as it's unfolding. What other questions do you have outstanding? And there's there's a question about how long this is going to take. And we're seeing a lot of setting of expectations very cautiously by American officials, but also some of the lawyers saying this is, this could take six weeks, that this is a very delicate, even at a sort of technical level, moving nearly $6 billion uh, from accounts in, uh, sort of held by South Korea. There's oil revenues uh, owed by South Korea to Iran that have been frozen as a result of sanctions that can't go anywhere near the American banking system because, of course, the ferocious sanctions that would prevent that. So they have to go to this account in Qatar that uh, Eminem Elise talked about. And so all of this delicate dance is a delicate financial dance. It involves multiple governments that clearly the government of Qatar are very important, but also Switzerland has been playing a role, South Korea playing a role. And of course, South Korea, as part of this long negotiation over these frozen billions, had one of its oil tankers seized for a while, and the captain held only released after some months. And so there's a lot of different moving parts. But there is a sense that the fact that it's now gone public and the fact that these people have left the really horrible Evin prison in Tehran to now be taken to what we think is not so much home arrest as uh, heavily guarded hotel rooms, that is at least a sign that the thing is on track as expected for the moment. Also this week, representatives of eight South American countries met in Brazil for a discussion about the preservation of the Amazon rainforest. The two-day summit ended with the signing of the Belém Declaration. It protects indigenous rights and establishes a scientific body to conduct annual research of the rainforest. Elise, why was this meeting of the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization considered so significant for the environment? I mean, look, this is the first time that this group, uh, you know, the ACTO got together for the first time in 14 years. And even the whole idea of trying to fight for deforestation um, is important because those billions of trees that make up the Amazon, they're holding all of this carbon accumulated over centuries and their leaves absorb the carbon dioxide that would otherwise remain in the atmosphere. So just the whole idea that they'd be talking um, about trying to fight deforestation is really important. Um, Brazilian President Lula, this is really his, you know, cause de etre, staked his international reputation on trying to improve Brazil's environmental standing after President Bolazar, um, uh, he ousted him. But this joint declaration kind of fell short of what they were really looking for to end deforestation, um, kind of left countries to pursue their own goals. But at the same time, even though um, it didn't you know, go as far as it could have and it, maybe it should have, it did include, as you said, commitments to enhance cooperation on other issues like water management, sustainable development. And I think it does put this group 
you know, kind of boosts their credibility as you head to the 2025 climate change conference as, as COP. But it, it also kind of the summit was on the same day that the European Union confirmed July was the hottest month on record. So, I mean, clearly there's a lot more to be done. And, you know, climate activists are saying it didn't go nearly far enough. But Emily, we heard a mention of Lula. Who else are the key players that are leading the negotiations here? Well, there's later this month, there's going to be a trilateral between Lula um, in the DRC with the leader of the DRC and also um, the leader of Indonesia. So those three, you know, after there was this this um, Amazon summit, there was also a summit of rainforest leaders. And then we'll have this other mini summit. And we're, I think we're going to continue to see sort of the global south or rainforest countries say, we're doing our bit, but you need to help. You rich countries need to help pay us and, and help pay to do it. Um, and those wealthier countries say, OK, but you need to see deforestation. So that's sort of the tension. That's that's the, the push and pull of where we're at. David, you are joining us from Beijing via Skype, where there's been a record-setting heat wave this summer and record-setting rainfall. What's summer been like in China's capital city? Um, it's been pretty scary. Not The center of the city has been just kind of very wet and very hot. But we've seen some really uh, horrible killer floods uh, in outlying districts and particularly cities near Beijing. And this was caused by the worst, heaviest rainfall uh, for 140 years. We saw basically a year's worth of rain falling in a couple of days in some places. And just these walls of stormwater coming down, enormous rivers sweeping into cities. Uh, the death toll is actually only, well, only sounds like a strange thing to say, but the death toll is much better this time than when we had previous floods. There was actually quite a lot of uh, work going on to divert floodwaters, but it's still at least 60 people. What's been uh, extremely sort of stressful for the Chinese public is that there's always bad floods and bad weather in China in summer, but the pattern seems to be just getting more and more extreme. So we've seen records falling all year. We've seen back in January, China's coldest ever temperature uh, up near the Russian border, uh, minus 52 degrees Celsius. Uh, we've seen the hottest temperature uh, ever on record reported out in the far west in Xinjiang. And there just is a sense that the weather is becoming more and more extreme in a country that already suffers from droughts and floods and a desperate lack of arable land and clean water. How has Chinese President Xi Jinping responded to the extreme weather? It's been fascinating to see this extremely sort of tightly controlled censorship and propaganda machine. Uh, you've seen President Xi uh, issuing a statement calling for normality to be to normality to be restored as soon as possible and for rescue work. And you've seen the state media do what they always do, which is praise heroic soldiers and fire and rescue workers. What you are not seeing from state media is any real discussion of whether climate change is part of this. And that might seem puzzling because Xi Jinping, the supreme leader, has actually made some quite ambitious pledges uh, for China to try and tackle its giant carbon emissions, the largest in the world, and go carbon neutral before 2060. I think what we see once again is that the Communist Party is interested in having top-down promises on climate change on its timetable, but it does not want countries like America forcing China's hand, trying to speed them up. And as a result, it doesn't want public opinion in China at the grassroots to try to demand more urgent action. If climate change is going to be tackled in China, it's going to be done at the pace decided by the Communist Party and its supreme leader, Xi Jinping. Thanks for that, David. Now, an update on a story we covered last week. An aid organization says a U.S. nurse and her young daughter who were kidnapped in Haiti in late July were released unharmed and healthy. Alex Dorsonville and her daughter were freed on August 8th. 
LYAD, the Christian group founded by Dorsonville's husband, thanked U.S. authorities and created and credited a faith-based global security ministry with providing consultants that helped lead to the release of the two. Haiti was thrown into turmoil following the 2021 assassination of its president, Juvenel Moise. Let's move now to Ecuador, where the country's in a state of shock after the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio on Wednesday night. The fatal shooting was captured on video at a campaign rally north of the capital, Quito. It shows Villavicencio getting into a car before several shots rang out. The first round of voting is due to take place on August 20th. Elise, can you tell us more about Fernando Villavicencio and what platform he was campaigning on? I mean, yeah, he was a congressman and a former journalist, really made his name even before, you know, becoming into politics for exposing corruption under the um, government of Correa between 2007 and 2017, and then continued to do so in politics, first as a congressman, then as a candidate, really campaigning on combating state corruption, vocal on the need to tackle rising crime in the country, and and combat drug gangs. And one of the first candidates really to allege these links between crime and government officials in Ecuador and said if he was, you know, he said there was a real lenient approach to gangs, that that if he came to power, there'd be a crackdown. And, And, you know, Ecuador has been really relatively safe in Latin America, but crime has really shot up. And this was really his, um, you know, kind of cornerstone of his, campaign that he was going to crack down on this crime. So what happens now to elections? He's one of was one of eight presidential candidates. Well, there's a 60 day national state of emergency. But the but President Lasso um, said, you know, who's running for reelection, obviously, vowed the state would go ahead. The vote would go ahead. Ecuador's attorney general's office said Villa Vicencio's suspected shooter died in police custody following an exchange of fire with security personnel. Six Colombian nationals have been arrested in connection with the killing. We were just talking about Haiti, where Colombian nationals were involved in Moise's killing. Emily, do we have any sense of the motive here in Ecuador and the involvement of Colombian nationals? Well, it's believed that the six, in addition to being Colombian nationals, um, were gang members. And so I think although obviously information is still unfolding and it's a, it's a information still unfolding, it's a developing situation. Um, I think one could be forgiven for suspecting that perhaps someone somewhere was upset about the campaign promise to crack down on crime and corruption. Let's move on now to Niger. It's been two weeks since mutinous soldiers ousted Niger's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Since then, regional tensions are deepening. There's growing uncertainty within the country as to what is going to happen next. So let's start with what happened this week. Elise, acting deputy, deputy secretary of state Victoria Newland traveled to Niamey on Monday and said coup leaders refused to allow her to meet with Bazoum, who she described as under virtual house arrest. What else should we know about what happened during this visit? Well, she basically um, said that the coup leaders were unreceptive. You know, the U.S. really wants to start negotiations to restore constitutional rule and, and uh, you know, restore Bazoum to power. Um, and she said, look, they were very difficult talks. They were frank, but, you know, we're pushing for a negotiated solution uh, and it's not happening. I mean, Secretary of State Tony Blinken spoke to Nazum, Barzoom, sorry. And, you know, he's really I think the U.S. now is trying to, you know, say that while Russia didn't actually um, cause the coup or, you know, they're certainly taking advantage of it with the, with the Wagner group. And they're really trying to say that Russia is really 
trying to be a spoiler here. Um, but the U.S., you know, beyond Russia, the U.S. is just really worried about this group kind of possibly manifesting, you know, this horrible trend that we've seen in the region about coups. And so, you know, the region has, has suffered several coups, and the U.S. is really just trying to stop this trend along with African leaders. David, given that, what do you make of this rebuff towards the U.S.? Look, I think that it's part, in, in terms of the, the coup leaders, this is part of a kind of political pitch that they are making, that they are the anti-Western kind of sort of African nationalism is, is part of their pitch. Now, there is actually reporting, including from colleagues of mine in Niger, that these are actually a bunch of generals who are facing retirement and that there's really personal ambition behind this particular coup and this decision to take their president hostage. But the bigger picture is that uh, Niger, like Mali, like other countries, is a former French colony. And the politics of the moment are virulently anti-French, uh, virulently anti-Western. And part of the driver for that for public opinion is a sincere sense that their countries are under very severe threat of, of kind of very nasty violence from Islamist groups and terrorists. And that the Western forces, including American troops and French troops who are still in Niger, America has an important drone base there, that they have not tackled the terrorism and that there is this kind of hope, certainly on the part of a lot of public opinion in Niger, fueled by the coup leaders, that the harsh, tes- uh, the harsh techniques of something like the Wagner Group and Russian mercenaries could be what's needed to crack down on terrorism. And of course, Russia is delighted to step in and suggest that this is all the fault of the West and that what you need is the tough, hard line of Russians working with African leaders. And so it is a murky mix of personal ambition by some generals and geopolitics and also public opinion that is desperately upset and fed up with the failure to to get hold of Islamist violence. On Thursday, the 15-member Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, met in Abuja, Nigeria, for an emergency summit after the coup leaders defied their earlier threat to use force to restore democracy. Here's Nigerian President ECOWAS Chair Bola Tinubu at the end of the summit. We have reaffirmed our commitment to the people of Niger and to the progress of our entire ECOWAS community. We will continue with that. And you will see from the community of this extraordinary summit that no option is taken off the table, including the use of force. Elise, what do we know about what ECOWAS is capable of doing, including what we just heard there about the use of force? Well, and I mean, beyond, you know, the ra- who knows if they're really doing this or they're just ramping up their rhetoric, but they did say that they're ordering an activation and deployment of a regional standby force to restore order. Um, so, you know, look, they do, all the states are kind of saying that they would put forward um, troops. I think, you know, the president of the ECOWAS, who you just heard from, offered about 1,100 troops. Nigeria has 25,000 troops. Um, and, you know, ECOWAS has had little influence in stopping these coups in Mali and Burkina Faso. Um, and, you know, Niger is really seen as one of the last democratic partners in the region. So they really think that, you know, this has been an extremely harsh response. Um, they've already imposed economic and travel sanctions. Um, and that's an attempt to change course. But, you know, A, the coup leaders don't seem to be open to dialogue. And frankly, Um, As David was saying, you know, the people um, of Niger don't necessarily want to see force 
Um, about 79% of them support the actions of the coup leaders and that it should stay in power until new elections are hold. And even if they were able to restore Barzoom, he could be perceived as a puppet of foreign forces because of this anti-Western um, sentiment. So, you know, a, a lot of people are saying that the you know chance for um, dialogue really seems to be running out. And, you know, there's a lot of concern um, that this could become even more violent. On to more political upheaval. Over the weekend in Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan was sentenced to three years in prison for illegally selling gifts he was given while in office. That conviction bars him from running for political office for five years. Khan recorded this message for his supporters shortly before his arrest, as translated by Al Jazeera. My fellow Pakistanis, by the time this message reaches you, they will have arrested me and I will be in jail. I have one request from you, an appeal that you do not sit in your homes quietly. Whatever I am doing is not for myself. I am doing it for you. The Pakistani parliament ousted him from office in 2022 with a no-confidence vote. Emily, I wonder what you make of that statement Khan made, what effect that's had in Pakistan as he's the leading opposition politician. Right. So, I mean, this has been going on, as you say, for for over a year now, um, with Khan basically saying that his removal and, and those out to get him, that this was, that the military, the Pakistani military was behind it. Ironically, um, when he came to power, his critics said um, Imran Khan is a, is a stooge of the military, effectively. But anyway, now he is presenting himself as sort of the civilian hero taking on the military. And, and, and he, he is genuinely popular and has supporters. He's clearly hoping that they will come out to the streets and, and that this will be appealed. Um, you know, it's really hard to say what this will mean for stability in Pakistan, because on the one hand, perhaps that does happen, right? And, 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 and what does it mean for a country when a popular politician is not allowed to run in elections? On the other hand, if he himself cannot run, does that take sort of the wind out of the sails of this movement? Um, and does it allow the military to take still tighter control of the political process? Um, so it's, it's, it's quite early days. We don't actually know when elections will be. And, and so we don't really know how long this has to play out. As we think about Pakistan gearing up for a total overhaul of its national elected government, the National Assembly, the lower chamber of its parliament, has reached the end of its five-year term. Uh, Pakistan's president formally dissolved the National Assembly this week. David, when are Pakistanis expected to go to the polls? Um, it's unclear because we've seen uh, an outgoing minister saying that elections could be delayed. And, you know, Emily was saying that there's the irony that Imran Khan was seen when he came to power as the puppet of the army and is being pushed out of power by the army. That's not just what people think, it's it's what happened. He was, like every prime minister of Pakistan, put in place with the approval, if not the connivance, of the generals. And then they tired of him. And we've seen really that he's been challenging the generals in a way that is very unusual in Pakistani politics. Since he was forced out in that no-confidence vote in parliament, he went around the country with sometimes violent rallies uh, saying that the generals were... Uh, an enemy of the people, that they had tried to assassinate him. Some of his supporters even attacked military bases earlier this year uh, in May, which is really an extraordinary kind of gesture of defiance in a country where the military holds so much power. And the caretaker government is now somewhat in hock to the military. And actually, again, according to my colleagues in Pakistan from The Economist, they would like the election to be delayed because they're about to take some very unpopular decisions uh, to do with trying to basically save the disastrous state of the Pakistani economy by doing things like 
charging more for energy uh, and higher interest rates. And therefore, they don't want an election anytime soon. So there's this unholy alliance between the generals who are really flexing their muscles. And perhaps the real fear is that they might rejig the sort of the hybrid system of politics to give themselves more explicit power. And we'd be back to something like military rule in Pakistan. David, how is the federal government running then before elections take place? So we have a caretaker government, uh, which has been given the power to do some fairly urgent things like negotiate with the International Monetary Fund, because Pakistan is basically completely broke and just secured $3 billion in emergency aid uh, from the IMF. Um, And it can sign foreign investment deals because we're seeing things like the head of the army actually going to potentially friendly countries, Arab Gulf countries and saying, would you like to invest in Pakistan? Pakistan has some deep pocketed friends, including where I am, China. But there is a sense that the instability of politics means that um, focusing too much kind of trusting attention on this civilian government and the idea of elections is to miss what's really going on, which is potentially the army really putting itself back in charge of politics. Let's turn to American support of Ukraine. The Biden administration's commitment to Ukraine continued this week with the president requesting $24 billion in new aid. It's part of a larger $40 billion proposal to fund several projects from other foreign aid to disaster relief and border security in the U.S. This year, the U.S. Department of Defense got $35 billion to support Ukraine. Elise, what are you watching for as a potential turning point in Russia's full-scale invasion of the country here, whether that's battlefield dynamics or a change in the American support we've just been talking about? Well, on the, I think, you know, one is going to determine the, uh, the latter is going to determine the former. I mean, military generals, um, you know, former military generals in the U.S. say, really, this is going to shape out the way the U.S. wants to shape out. If the U.S. wants, you know, Ukraine to conclusively defeat Russia, it's going to have to give the type of aid and the type of weapons that would enable it to do so. I mean, clearly the U.S. and its Western allies have been able to help Ukraine make dents, but to really decisively uh, defeat Russia is going to take a lot more support. Um, You know, and Congress has already approved $113 billion in all types of military, economic, and, and other aid and largest donor to Ukraine. But it does come as, you know, polls detect a growing wariness over the war among the American public that's more focused at home. Everyone's watching to see what the U.S. will do. And now you have this election season. Are the Republicans going to, you know, fight with the U.S. over this, like some of the candidates, um, you know, like President Trump or Ron DeSantos, you know, maybe a little fuzzy on support for Ukraine, while others are more supportive. And so, and, and I also think it remains to be seen what the Republicans are going to do. They promised not to write a blank check for Ukraine. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the House um, Speaker, um, has said that it's not going to be an automatic approval. But Senate Le- Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has, has voiced a little bit more support. So we'll have to see about this particular package. But I certainly think it'll be an issue in the presidential campaign. You could email your thoughts or questions to 1A at WAMU.org. We just got this from Kurt. Does Biden want to beat Putin or doesn't he? He appears to think we can win this war without embarrassing or provoking Putin. I don't think that is possible. His, Biden's, slow walking of weapons to Ukraine just stretches out the war and causes more death and destruction. How many of the weapons that have been promised have actually been delivered? Emily, you want to weigh in here? Yeah. First of all, I just want to say when people say like it might provoke Putin, 
to do what he I mean he's he invaded Ukraine. So I think that you know the the horses have escaped the barn on that one. Um, no, I mean it's it's been I I, I, under, I do understand the to be less glib. I do understand the frustration of if you're going to give these weapons, why not why not just give them? But the United States, like its allies who are supporting that are supporting Ukraine, are, are democratic countries. Um, billions in aid, lethal or not, has been given to Ukraine in this war. Now, what one interesting thing in the counteroffensive is that it turned out that uh, the newer U.S. training was less, I don't know, less relied on by the Ukrainians um, than sort of their tried, tried and true tactics. Um, so ultimately, yes, it's with U.S. support. Yes, it's with Western support. But it's still, it remains the Ukrainians who are doing the fighting and the dying. Also in the region, Poland says it will send 10,000 troops to its border with Belarus to counter unauthorized migration from Russia's ally. It's also wary of Wagner troops in Belarus. David, what's going on here? What are you watching for next? Well, remember that border. Belarus has used it in the past, uh, including very cynically. It opened it uh, several months ago to allow uh, migrants from the far side of the world, from places like Iraq and Syria, to get across into Poland deliberately to cause trouble. Belarus, of course, the basically dependent, pliant ally of Vladimir Putin after uh, I mean, long-time relationship, but also after the, the dictator there, Alexander Lukashenko, stole his most recent elections. He was basically saved by uh, being propped up by Russia. Um, I think what you're seeing is a sense that NATO, and Poland is, of course, a NATO member, is feeling a need to really strengthen its borders against Russia and its, uh, and its kind of allies. Clearly, the presence of those Wagner fighters uh, who left if you, after they'd staged their mutiny were in a deal sent to Belarus. And then there's some reporting they may be coming back to Russia. Um, there's a sense that NATO needs to shore up its borders. And to go back to that point at the beginning about why we don't want to provoke Vladimir Putin, you do not want Vladimir Putin to feel that NATO's borders might be something he wants to test. You you basically want that war to stay in Ukraine. I think the other explanation for why America is wary of sending very powerful long-range weapons is that there is a political difference between American weapons being used by Ukrainians to defend their own soil inside Ukraine and Ukrainians using long-range weapons to, using American weapons to kill Russians in Russia. And I think there has consistently been real concern by the Biden administration that you don't want to encourage those elements in the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and government who would like to strike deep into Russia to take the war to kind of Russia's homeland. Because if you do that with American weapons, then you are escalating in, in a real sense. And then who knows whether NATO's borders would be quite as inviolate. And then you'd be into a very much more dangerous conflict. As we talk about if there's any way forward towards ending this conflict, it's been nearly a week since so-called peace talks over Russia's invasion of Ukraine wrapped up in Saudi Arabia. China's attendance was a big deal. David, how's that been playing out in Chinese media this week? Chinese media is incredibly consistent. Since the beginning of this war, they said that China is a peace-loving, neutral player that wants only the war to stop as soon as possible for the good of the world and for the good of countries around the global south that are paying higher prices in energy and in food. Uh, China is also very consistent in saying that the war was provoked by NATO and America uh, pushing Russia into a corner, leaving Russia with no choice but to defend itself, and that the war is only carrying on today because America, above all, but others are pouring arms into Ukraine to keep that going for the kind of the American merchants of death to profit, uh, which is, you know, the line from the Chinese foreign ministry. What was important about China's presence, though, at those talks in Saudi Arabia is that this was the second round 
of international peace talks, and you had senior officials, including Jake Sullivan from the US at those talks, and you had senior Ukrainians at those talks, the Russians were not invited. And in the first round, uh, the Chinese stayed away. That was the first round in June in Copenhagen. And there was a sense that that was China showing its hand, that its neutrality is a basically a pro-Russian quasi-neutrality. But China turned up this time, even though, again, the Russians weren't there and the Ukrainians were, and played a somewhat constructive role. And there is a sense that this is not really that China is neutral. It's more that China is very keen to be seen by countries, particularly in the global south, as the responsible adult in the room, not like the wicked warmongers of America who are keeping the war going. But you have to listen to the Ukrainians who want the Chinese in these talks. They think China is going to have to be part of the end game of this because China has influence, although not tremendous influence in this case, over Vladimir Putin. And so the Chinese, you're seeing them being welcomed, although very cautiously and warily, without much hope by every country around the table. And it was better that they were there than that they stayed away. There is an upcoming G20 leader summit in New Delhi, and President Putin hasn't ruled out showing up in person. That's according to a Kremlin source. Emily, we're still a month out from that. But what atmosphere would Putin face if he goes? Um, Okay, so if if he does go, it will be because he's trying to, I mean, it would be it's a, a you know show that he's a serious international player. There's Russian Russian presidential elections, such as they are early next year, and perhaps shore up his you know his uh, his image before that. Um, and it would be because India is not a member is not party to the ICC like the U.S. And so the ICC's arrest warrant sort of doesn't uh, doesn't carry much weight there. If he does not go, um, I believe it will be because unlike most of the photo ops that he's had, really all of the photo ops that he's had and appearances that he's had since the war started, you, you, you can't control, you can't have the same kind of control on the media at the G20 because the media in attendance are from countries like, you know, they're from the G20 countries. It's not just Russia and uh, Russian and Chinese media and Central Asian state and Central Asian media. Um, also, he would either be, I mean, we saw this after, after Crimea, that either there would be, uh, you know, sort of, he'd be snubbed and ignored, or he would be lambasted by the other leaders there. So my my guess, if I had to guess, is that he will not show up, but I've been wrong many times before, so we will see. A reminder of our guests, we're speaking with journalist and author Emily Tamkin, Elise Labitt from Zivi News, and David Rennie from The Economist. On Tuesday, Northern Ireland's police force accidentally released private information revealing the identities of its officers. In response to a freedom of information request, the force briefly posted online the names and work locations of all of its staff. Emily, why is officer data especially sensitive in Northern Ireland? I mean, when we say staff, it also include members of, included members of the organized crime unit and the intelligence officers and, and the surveillance unit. Um, and, and officers of the PSNI have been targets of paramilitaries. Um, and actually, just this past March, the, the terror threat level in Northern Ireland was raised. And so, understandably, um, these officers and, and their families are, you know, are, are, are fearful of something exactly like this, which was just human error happening. Right. And that threat level was raised to severe. Um, Britain raised that following a gun attack on a police officer by a paramilitary group called the New IRA. The New IRA opposes the terms of the 1998 Good Friday peace deal. David, can you remind us the details of that agreement and what we need to know about the New IRA? 
Well, what we need to know in the case of the police force is that one of the key elements of that peace deal that was brokered by two successive governments, the John Major government and then Tony Blair, and really transformed life, not just in Northern Ireland, most of all, but also, you know, my hometown of London. You know, I grew up as a child in London. We had bombs. Bombs went off near where I was. It was a very normal thing uh, to have these kind of terrifying events happening all over the UK. That stopped uh, because of a whole series of power sharing agreements. And one of the big things was that the police force, which had been a bastion of Protestant unionist uh, sort of sectarian policing and was hated and distrusted by many Catholics in Northern Ireland, became a genuinely cross-border, a cross-sort of uh, community police force with Catholic members and Protestant members. It changed its name from the Royal Ulster Constabulary to the Police Service of Northern Ireland. And so it's the fact that these officers live in communities which have historically often distrusted the police intensely or maybe from you know, Catholic officers working in a Protestant area that puts them at really extreme risk. And so this is why this data breach is so unbelievably serious for these officers who in many cases don't tell anyone other than their family and their closest friends that they are even in the police. So I wanted to end, we have a few minutes left, by asking all of you what you're watching for in the coming week. David? Uh, China's economy. We've just had some really rough numbers, uh, including a sign of deflation. Now, that may sound welcome in a country like America with inflation. But in fact, if people think prices are going to keep going down, that's a reason not to buy things because they're going to get cheaper later. And that's a real death blow to an economy once you get into that spiral. And so that's what we're all watching here in China. David, how do you think this affects China's power on the global stage when we're thinking about China's inflation? In the long term, it's, it's a big deal. In the short term, we're watching to see if they s- sort of pull out some more sort of policy measures which may get their economy back on track. But there is no separating the clout and the power and in some ways the legitimacy of the Communist Party domestically here in China from its economic miracle of the last 30 years. If that starts to slow and they look like they don't know what they're doing, that changes a huge amount here in China, but also around the world. Elise, what about you? What are you watching for in the coming week? I mean, in addition to what, you know, how this plays out in Niger and whether ECOWAS actually is going to um, authorize a force to go in, I'm also interested in this um, Ukraine peace talks process. Now the Saudis say they're going to put together all of these working groups. And, and what, as David said, you know, China's injection into the process, while may not be, um, you know, pivotal, um, obviously shows that, you know, it is a process that is going to be continued. And, you know, at some point, will this group try, will the Saudis, who obviously have good relations with Russia, try to get Russia involved in the process? I think we're going to see some movement on this in the next few weeks. Emily Tampkin? Well, you mentioned bears earlier, so my story in, involves bears as well. Um, Love it. Next, mo- <laughs> next month, Slovakia uh, goes to the polls, and Robert Fica, who is the former prime minister who resigned after not just after months of anti-corruption protests, but also, I mean, really the the, the, the final straw was the murder of a young journalist. Um, so he stepped down. He's trying to come back to power. So these are very, you know, it's uh, closely watched elections. It's, there's a lot riding on this. Fica is quite, is, is much more nato um, and and Atlantis is critical than the current government. Um, the reason bears come in is that bear attacks have been happening in Slovakia and have completely taken over the political discourse there to the point that everything you know, like everything, is now about the bear attacks, according to according to reports from the country. And so I am very curious as to whether or not that can be sustained by the opposition, and whether or not they can sort of ride the bear, if you will, to the polls. Um, not to make light of the victims of bear attacks, um, or or if the if the conversation sort of changes and shifts as we 
come closer uh, to elections. I think I think that these elections are really if you've if you've not you know if you weren't familiar with pizza or you haven't tuned into the Slovak elections, I really do think that not just for Slovakia but for the region and really for for NATO and the EU, these are these are ones to watch. So uh, one to watch. So I'll be I'll be keeping an eye. A big thank you to our guides. Emily Tankin is a reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Her substack is E.T. Wright Home. Elise Labatt is founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. And David Rennie is the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. I want to break free. I want to break free. And before we go, a very scary headline from a tarmac runway in Dubai. A bear being transported on an Iraqi Airways flight from Baghdad to Dubai caused delays after it escaped from a crate in the cargo hold upon landing. Iraqi Airways issued an apology saying it wasn't to blame for the bear's escape and that the aircraft's crew had worked with authorities in the United Arab Emirates, which dispatched specialists to sedate the animal and remove it from the plane. In a video circulating, a bear cub can be seen roaming outside of its crate on the plane while people pat and attempt to comfort it. Iraq's prime minister has ordered an investigation. That'll do it for this edition of the News Roundup. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from SAP Concur, a leading brand for integrated travel expense and invoice management solutions. With SAP Concur Solutions, you'll be ready to take on whatever the market throws at you next. Learn more at concur.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.